The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Dr. David Vendrunen. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. We are going to be looking together at Matthew 9, verses 14 through 17. This is a text, I, I have preached this in a, a few local uh, Reformed churches uh, recently, fairly recently. A uh, few of you may have uh, heard me uh, preach this, uh, but certainly most of you have not. So Uh, Let's consider this uh, text together. Matthew 9, verses 14 through 17. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. This ends our reading of God's word. It's interesting here in Matthew 9, Uh, In the previous story, Jesus reclines at a festive meal with tax collectors and sinners, and the Pharisees question him for his feasting practices. And in the very next text, the disciples of John come to him and question him about his fasting or lack of fasting practices. Now, fasting, of course, is a... uh, It's a common human practice and often a controversial practice. People fast for a variety of reasons. They can fast, they will fast for political protest or for health reasons. But of course, many people throughout the world, throughout history, have fasted for religious reasons, whether in Christianity or in other uh, other religions. And of course, among Christians, fasting is can be controversial. There are different views and different practices uh, among believers. This text, we shouldn't expect this text to answer every question about fasting, but it certainly is an important one, one that speaks very directly, at least directly generally, uh, to our view and attitude towards fasting uh, for us as New Covenant believers. Now, we notice here, it's interesting that it's the disciples of John that come to Jesus here. Uh, We expect, as we read the Gospels, to find the Pharisees coming to challenge Jesus, as they did in the previous uh, text. But here's the disciples of John. So we read this more of a, I think, as a friendly question than as as an implicit challenge uh, to Jesus or as a trap for him. And they ask him, why do we and the Pharisees fast? And your disciples do not fast. So the the disciples of John place themselves on the side of the Pharisees and want to know why Jesus' disciples do not follow uh, regular fasting practices. 
Now, we do know some things about the Pharisees' practice of fasting. They fasted twice a week, which is a lot of fasting. We don't know how often the disciples of John fasted. could well be that they, uh, they, their practices were similar to that of the Pharisees. Ultimately, what's really important uh, is not to know what the Pharisees did, but we're curious as to what the Old Testament would have required of the believers of Jesus' time. As we look at the Old Testament, we look at the Old Testament law, we find that there, fasting was required, but only once a year. It was only on the Day of Atonement, as we read about in Leviticus, that fasting was required of the Israelites. And yet, as we look at the Old Testament, we find a lot of references to fasting. It was evident that people were fasting a lot more often uh, than just that once a year for the Day of Atonement. As we look at those Old Testament references, one thing we see, one thing we notice, is that the fasting that was taking place very often corresponded to times of lament, mourning, repentance. It often, it often arose at times when God's judgment was coming upon the people, or at least God's judgment was threatened for the people of, because of their sins. And so fasting was something that arose when the people needed to repent. They needed to mourn over their sin and upon the judgment that, God's, uh, that God was going to bring because of their sin. Now that means that we're not surprised that we find a lot of fasting under the Old Covenant. All right, under the Old Covenant, did the people need to do a lot of repenting? Did they violate God's law once in a while? Did God threaten judgment once in a while under the Old Covenant? Well, the answer to that is obviously yes. They were constantly violating God's law. God was constantly bringing judgment or threatening judgment against them. And so I think it's fair to say that it was actually very appropriate that the people were doing a lot of fasting under the Old Covenant. And then we think about the days of Jesus. Now, the people had come back from their exile in Babylon, at least some of them had. Some of the, the Israelites had come back. But it's not as if things were great. They came back to a land that had no temple. Even when they rebuilt the temple, it had no Ark of the Covenant in it. They came back to a land that was not going to be ruled and was not being ruled in their day by a descendant of David. They were ruled instead by the pagan Romans. And so we can understand that they still felt the weight of God's judgment under the Old Covenant weighing upon them. And of course, the disciples of John are the ones coming to Jesus. What was John's message? It was a message of repentance. It was a message of coming judgment. The axe is at the root of the tree, you brood of vipers. If you're hearing that message day after day, living out in the desert, you're probably doing a lot more fasting than you are feasting. Well, what is Jesus' answer when he is asked this question against this background of the Old Covenant? Well, Jesus first answers with a rhetorical question. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? And the answer we all know, well, of course not. 
We know how it is with weddings. You go to a wedding, the groom is there, the bride's there as well. It's not a time for mourning. It's a time for joy. If you're not feeling joyful when you go to a wedding, then fake it. Right? You don't go to a wedding and cry, you know, at least you don't cry because you're unhappy. You don't act, you don't pout, uh, even if you're, you don't want to be there and aren't happy about things. Right? A wedding is a time to be joyful. When you get a wedding invitation, it doesn't, you don't get invited to a ceremony followed by a time of fasting afterwards. You get invited to a wedding for a time and you get invited to, to a, a feast afterwards. It's a time of joy. And so what Jesus is telling us, is what tell, he's telling his disciple, or he's telling these disciples of John, of course my disciples aren't fasting. I'm here. Jesus is identifying himself as the groom. He's the long-awaited Messiah. And when the Messiah comes, he's not coming bringing grief with him, not bringing lamentation. He's coming and bringing joy because he's coming to lift the judgment from upon the people of God. He's lifting the condemnation. He's lifting the wrath of God from upon his people for their sin. If you are with Jesus and he is coming to announce salvation, to bring salvation, you feast like Jesus did with the tax collectors and sinners. You don't fast. Now, Jesus does say something else. And it's this that really raises, this, this, this at least raises a lot of questions, more difficult questions for us as we think about what Jesus' words imply for us as the church. He says, continuing on in verse 15, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Right? So there are days coming when, you see my disciples who are feasting rather than fasting, days are coming when they're going to be fasting instead. What is he talking about? When? What days are these? Well, we know for sure these days would have been the days when he was crucified. In the gospel, in John 16, in the, the, uh, that upper room discourse, the night when Jesus was betrayed, he said to them, I'm going to be taken away and you are going to mourn. And I think we can be confident that after they saw Jesus crucified, the disciples didn't go back to their place where they were staying and have a, have a big feast. They probably fasted. It was a time of mourning. Fasting is appropriate during times of mourning. But then we ask the question, Jesus rose again. He appeared with his disciples. But then he ascended into heaven. So what is our situation today? Is the bridegroom with us? Or is he away from us? Has he been taken from us? Are these days of feasting or are these days of fasting? It may not be immediately obvious what the answer to that question is. So we put the question to the Gospel of Matthew. That's the Gospel we're looking at. Does the Gospel of Matthew portray the days after Jesus' ascension as a time when Jesus is fundamentally with us or fundamentally absent from us? There are two texts 
that seem to answer this question. And they both answer it in the same way. In Matthew 18, as Jesus talks, speaks about the church, about the church, how the church is to conduct itself, how the church is to worship, how the church is to discipline, Jesus says words that are very comforting to have always been comforting to small reformed churches. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I with you. When the church of Jesus Christ meets, Jesus is with them. He's with us. Or we go to the very end of Matthew, Matthew 28, the very last thing Jesus says before he ascends to heaven. Behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. And so we ask, here we are after the ascension. Between the days of the ascension and Jesus coming, is Jesus with us or not? Well, Jesus promised, I am with you. It is true he is away from us bodily, physically. We have not yet been glorified to see him face to face. Things are not as good as they will be on that day. But fundamentally, Jesus is with us. He has poured out his spirit to be with us. He is with us through his word. He is with us through his sacraments. He is with us. It's also interesting, go back to John 16 for a moment. Right after Jesus said, I'm going to be taken away from you and then you will mourn. He immediately goes on to say, you will see me again and no one will take your joy from you. This is a time of joy. I should probably say that with a smile on my face. <laughs> this is a time of joy. You are a believer in Jesus Christ. What characterizes you? Mourning? Lamenting? Grieving? Or joy? What are the fruits of the Spirit? Love, grief, patience. No? <laughs> Love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness. We are a people who are to be characterized fundamentally by joy. And you know that's true, even though, as is so important to recognize, that the Christian life is marked by suffering, by trials, by temptations. This very Gospel of Matthew tells us that we will be persecuted, that if you confess Jesus, you may have to give up your home, you may have to give up your wealth. You may have to give up your family. So it's not as if Matthew is trying to hide the fact that the Christian life is characterized by loss, by denying yourself for the sake of Christ and, and his cross. And yet, we are called to be a joyful people, even in the midst of our suffering, not it's not even despite our suffering, even in our sufferings, we are to be joyful. Romans 5 tells us that. James 1 tells us that. We rejoice in our sufferings because those produce character. These produce hope within us. 
We rejoice in our sufferings because we know God's sufferings are one of the ways in which God works sanctification in us and makes us the sort of people that he wishes us to be and prepares us for life everlasting. We are to be a people who are joyful because Jesus, the bridegroom, has come. He's redeemed us and he's with us. And one of the things that is also so encouraging to us as new covenant people is that we are, things are even better for us than Matthew 9 indicates. Here Jesus speaks of us as though, or speaks of his disciples as though they are guests at a wedding. And if you're a guest at a wedding, well, you should be joyful. But you think about later New Testament revelation. Are we described as guests at a wedding in which Jesus is the groom? Well, actually, we're described as a bride at a wedding in which Jesus is the groom. And that's even better. That's a lot better. If the guests are to be joyful, how much more joyful is the, is the bride? The bride who has been purchased by the blood of her groom, as Ephesians 5 says, been purchased by the precious blood of Christ so we might be a radiant, pure bride for our husband. As Paul says in Romans 7, we have died to the law and its condemnation so that we might be married to another to who has been raised from the dead. And so, brothers and sisters, this text well, I haven't even talked about these last two verses. It really confirms what I'm saying here. Jesus speaks about two more analogies. You don't put a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. It makes the terror worse. You don't put new wine into old wineskins. We are called to be a new covenant people who live in the light of the coming of the Messiah. His accomplishment of redemption. His making us his pure and radiant bride has promised to be with us even to the end of the age. To live in the light of the fact that the wedding feast of the Lamb is already being prepared and we have a guaranteed place at that. You don't even need an invitation. Guests need an invitation. The bride doesn't need an invitation. As we seek to live lives appropriate as new covenant believers. We do not, we do not live according to the old ways. We do not put our new wine into old wineskins. So brothers and sisters, I suggest that this text is instructing us to see that fasting, though very appropriate as part of old covenant spirituality, so appropriate as a regular practice for the Old Covenant saints, is not appropriate, is not fitting as a regular practice, an ordinary practice for New Covenant believers. The New Testament never commands us to fast. That's significant. We do read on a few occasions that people fasted. We find, for example, in the book of Acts, when the church was 
getting ready to send off missionaries on a journey. They fasted to show their sincerity before God, to show their earnestness in seeking his blessing upon this. There are extraordinary occasions in which we may fast, but fasting is not a regular, ordinary practice for us as the New Covenant Church. We are a people characterized not by grief, not by mourning, but by joy. And so we are characterized much more as a feasting people rather than a fasting people. Feast. Not always literally. Might not be good for your health. But at least metaphorically. Be a feasting people. May people look at you and see you not as a lamenting people, but as a joyful people, the bride of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text you have placed before us. We thank you that you have brought us out from under the law. Not only the law as it condemns us, but even the law insofar as it prepared the old covenant people for the coming of the Messiah and instructed them to live in a way fitting for the days prior to his arrival. Oh Lord, we thank you that we are a new covenant people who have been given a joy that far surpasses that of our brothers and sisters under the old covenant. We thank you that we have now heard not of a future coming of the Messiah, but we have heard the proclamation that he has come, that he has died to lift the curse, that he has been raised up to make us his pure and radiant bride, that he has given us a place at the wedding banquet that can never be taken away from us, and that we may be a joyful people. Oh Lord, we pray that even in the midst of our sufferings, even in the midst of trials and temptations that threaten to beat us down and to wear us out, that you would fill us with an inexpressible joy. Father, thank you. Thank you for Christ. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would, by your Spirit, give us this joy that our natural powers, our natural efforts uh, can never produce. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Copyright 2018, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.